Today, Pastor Steve is gonna be sharing with us. So I want us to give him a hand as he comes out. Uh, thank him, thank you, Steve. Hey, really, you, really excited. He did an outstanding job last, last service. Hopefully he does good this time. You I know, hope we'll that see. too. Yeah, we'll I see. appreciate that. Hey, good morning, Church of Lake Mead. Hey, here's what I want you to do. Get to your feet, come on. And if you had that card you were given on the way in with Philippians scripture on it, grab that card because we are going to read it out loud together. My goal is that this will be a message that might actually enter into your heart because you're putting God's word in your heart and that's why you have this card. Take it, put it in your purse, bring it in the car, and as you live your life, maybe you can memorize these words. So we're going to read it out loud together, starting with the reference, and because it is the Word of God, we're going to read it with a little gusto, okay? I want to hear a little passion in this room. Here we go. Philippians 2, 3 to 5, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships, not another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Very good. You did pretty good. You may be seated. So it's great to be with you once again, and when Pastor Brad expressed this new series, I asked him, is there anything you would like me to speak on? Is there a topic? And he gave the suggestion of why don't you speak on what you did for your major project. Now, when you're working on your doctor ministry, you finish it by doing what is kind of like a dissertation. It's your book that you write. And the book that I wrote was on humility. It was entitled Breaking Free from Personality-Driven Ministry. Now, I wrote this because I've noticed a lot of churches that start to look a lot like the senior pastor. And I don't want to do that, I thought to myself. So I want to learn how to mitigate that. How can I make the church more about Jesus, less about the senior pastor? And so that is what I studied. So when he gave the suggestion, I thought this could be fun. This could be an effective tool. But having written a book on humility, you know what I've discovered? I still have so much to learn. There are so many times I lack humility in my life. And so very recently, this came to the forefront once again. So I knew I was going to be moving to the Las Vegas area about three years ago, because that's when we bought our home here in the Cadence development. But we weren't planning on moving into it immediately. But because we knew we were coming here, I started trying to make connections with various people and churches in anticipation of when I would move out this year. So a year ago, April, I made an appointment with the pastor of one of the larger churches in the Las Vegas area. And he comes to welcome me into his office, and he asked a good question. He says, why are you here, and who are you? And I said, I'm here because I'm moving here from New York, and I thought it would be good to get the lay of the land by meeting pastors in the area. He says, oh, that makes good sense. And we talked, and then as the conversation proceeded, he said, you know, our church has a location in Boulder City that's going to need a pastor. Maybe you could put in for that position if you were interested. And I thought, well, that sounds like a good idea. Who would I be in touch with? And he told me the person I would need to speak to. 
And so I made an appointment with that person. So a year ago, May, I'm having my first interview. It went really well. And then the first week in June, I had a second interview. It went really well. I, I asked the person interviewing me, how many candidates do you have? And he goes, frankly, you're the only one we have right now. Like, this looks pretty good for me. <laughs> so I'm coming out in the beginning of July of last year, and we have our final interview face-to-face. -face, and the interview goes well. And then he says to me, I'm going to go on vacation, and when I come back, I'll let you know what I decide. And I, he said, decide. So there's another candidate. Yeah, another candidate emerged uh, over the last few weeks. I'm like, okay. So he goes on vacation. He comes back. He gives me a call and says, uh, Steve, we're going to go with the other gentleman. And uh, thank you so much for being a part of this process. I'm like, oh, well, well, the Lord has spoken. This is not the job. I didn't know they were hoping that they would come out in August. And the earliest I could come out was January. But it is what it is. But come the fall, did you ever get curious about the person who gets the job, what you didn't get? Well, I was curious about that. So I'm going online to this church in Boulder City, and I'm, and I'm looking, and, and I click on a, a service, and it's the installation service for the guy who got the job. And I'm looking at him, and I'm like, he makes good sense. I mean, he's in his mid-30s, and, you know, I'm older Boulder City has an older demographic, so it's good to have a young preacher. Comes from the Midwest. All the pieces seem to be there that this was the right person. So then the person I interviewed with gets on the platform, and he gives an explanation of how we got to this point. He said, I needed to interview a number of people for this position. And I'm thinking, yeah, two. <laughs> but the reason I chose this gentleman is because he exemplified humility. Now, mind you, I am the guy who wrote the book on humility. <laughs> and he exemplified humility, which means I didn't quite exemplify humility. When I told this to the staff that I work with in my church in New York, one of them actually fell off the chair. The guy who wrote the book on humility didn't come across as humble. <laughs> I'm so appreciative of your thoughts. Which reminds me that I have a lot to learn. <laughs> and that this is going to be an ongoing battle in all of my life to be somebody who looks more and more like Jesus our Savior. With that in mind, I'd like to prepare our hearts in prayer to anticipate great things from a great God that he will open up our hearts by his spirit to receive what he has for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your kindness of giving your Holy Spirit to us. And we know that your Spirit leads us into all truth. So we pray that this time will be fruitful for growing us into the men, women, students that you've called us to be. And we pray that in the end, your Son, Jesus, will receive all the honor and glory. And Father, if there's anyone in this room who has never entered into a living relationship with your Son, we pray that this may be the day of beginning that relationship. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So if you have a Bible, would you open it now as we look at the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, and we're gonna come into this chapter in verse 24. 
Now, Pastor Brad mentioned that when the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 11, he seems to be referring to the exact same tradition that Luke is mentioning. And and if I can give you the background for our passage, Jesus has just officiated over the Passover. So what we just did together through Holy Communion, Jesus has just finished that with his disciples. And it is in that context we read these next things. Again, Luke 22, starting in verse 24. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Now, we look at this passage, and we're kind of struck by this argument that starts, who is the greatest? And we're thinking, come on, guys, really? We don't talk that way, who's the greatest. And then there's something that even messes with us even more. This is not the first time this conversation has arisen among the disciples. Luke records an earlier occasion, and that's found in Luke chapter 9, specifically verse 46 and following. And we read this. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is the least among you all who is the greatest. Now, twice they have this debate. In chapter 9, it was about who was going to be the greatest. And in chapter 22, it is about who has achieved the status of the greatest. Now, you're probably saying, these crazy disciples, why would they do that? I want you to give a little audit of your own life. When was the last time you judged somebody compared to yourself as to what degree they have, what car they drive, what their apartment looks like, what their neighborhood looks like, what their house looks like? how they dress, where they buy their clothes. We are regularly doing this kind of assessment of who is the greatest. For those of you who are a little older, you might remember Muhammad Ali had this thing, I am the greatest. Is that us? Maybe a little more subtly, but the truth is we really are part of this. I take you back in time, my second year in my church in New York, and we have our Easter service. And it was more people than any Easter service the church had ever had since 1943. We had 764 people. After that day, I'm like walking around. Biggest church service this church ever had. And I was excited because I was asked to be on the chair for Long Island for the last Billy Graham crusade to be held at Flushing Meadow Park in New York. And the meeting we were going to have was on the Sunday, excuse me, the Monday after Easter. 
So I'm thinking, I'm going to get to share how great my Easter service was. So I, I go to the meeting. I'm a little early, and there's a guy to my left, a guy to my right. And I turned to the guy on my right, and I said, how was your Easter? I could care less how his Easter was. I just wanted to tell him how great my Easter was. And he said, the Lord blessed. We had 12,000 through the doors. 12,000? You think I would have learned a lesson here. You really would think. But you know what I'm thinking? I have another person on the other side of me. So let's try this again, except now I'm a little more cautious. And I turn to that person. I say, uh, out of curiosity, what church are you a part of? And he said, I'm a part of Calvary Chapel, Old Bridge, New Jersey, which I knew already was the largest church in New Jersey. <laughs> and he's sitting on the other side of me. At that moment, I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, are we done? <laughs> I can go on all day. <laughs> yes, Lord, we are done. So when I hear that the disciples had a debate as to who was the greatest, I sit right along with them. And so now I want to sit with them as the Lord Jesus teaches them and teaches us. And this is what he says. The kings of the Gentiles lord it over, and those who have authority call themselves benefactors. So I'm seeing two things going on. The kings of the Gentiles, they want authority. They lord it over. And then they bend over backwards to pat themselves on the back, and they call themselves benefactors. So this is what they're looking. This is what Gentiles are looking. This is the world's way. We want authority and we want a title, authority and a title. And so that is a general rule of thumb that many of us are pursuing, many of us in the church. But then Jesus says these words, you are not to be like that. Okay, get your notepads out. This is what Jesus says we are supposed to be like. He said, Whoever wants to be the greatest must become like the youngest, and whoever wants to lead must be like them who serve. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? Yet I am among you as one who serves. So let's look at that beginning. He says, if you want to be the greatest, you must be like the youngest. And your mind may automatically go to that Luke 9 passage where Jesus says, the one who enters the kingdom is like a little child. And there's definitely a part of that in this. But there's more taking place here. My mother passed away seven and a half weeks ago. And uh, some of you know this already. And, I, and I'm grieving. I'm still mourning her loss. But part of the process of saying goodbye is dividing up the estate. So I have an older brother, and he's getting half, and I am getting half of my mother's estate. My father had passed away a number of years ago. Now, if this was the ancient world, according to Deuteronomy 21, verse 17, the older brother would get double the inheritance, double. And I'm being the younger brother, would get a lot less. We don't work in that world. We're just dividing it evenly. But that was the world in which Jesus is speaking, and this is what he says. Whoever wants to be the greatest, you are to be like the younger brother. 
You are to relinquish your rights to what you think you deserve and take the lesser position. And in the same way, you are to be like the one who serves, not the one who sits at the table. Very powerful. But John, in his gospel, chapter 13, explains that then Jesus did something to give power to this. He takes a towel, wraps it around his waist. He then gets a basin of water, and he goes to each disciple and starts washing their feet. And after he's done, he says, now that I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, go and do likewise. That's a very vivid description of what the Lord wants from us and that he teaches us by his own actions. So the year was 2002. I have received the call to become the senior pastor of Shelter Rock Church on Long Island, and I'm at my church in Illinois, and things are just wrapping up. And people are coming through to my office kind of like a revolving door to say goodbye to Pastor Steve. Some people are bringing gifts or cards. But one day, Susan and Marshall came to my office, and they had this big box. And they take out of this big box a statue. It was this statue. And they put it on my desk. And what you see is Jesus washing the feet of Peter. And so Marshall and Susan said to me, Steve, you have a great privilege now. You're going to be able to become the senior pastor of a church. But do you remember how Jesus led? He led by washing feet. He led by serving. So never forget that that is the way you are to lead at the church that God has given you the privilege of pastoring. I've kept this in my office ever since. Because every time things go in a way that I start patting myself on the back, I then remember the way of Jesus. So fast forward in time, and one of the pastors from my church, he said, Steve, I want to take you to Cleveland, Ohio. I said, why do you want to take me to Cleveland? Excuse me, not Cleveland, Ohio. Cleveland, Tennessee. Why do you want to take me to Cleveland, Tennessee? And he said, because you have a rich family heritage, and I think it would be fun for you to see it. Now, what he's referring to, he went to Lee University in Cleveland, Tennessee, and it was part of a denomination, a Pentecostal denomination called the Church of God. And the first general overseer of the Church of God was my great-grandfather, Ambrose Jessup Tomlinson. And I think it would be fun for you to see that. So we go to Cleveland, and we go to the denominational headquarters, and they are treating me like royalty because my great-grandpa founded this denomination. He was actually present, for those of you who know Pentecostal history, at the Azusa Street Revival. And it was a very powerful and, and exciting time. So as I'm in this organization, they say, uh, Mr. Tomlinson, Pastor Tomlinson, let me bring you into the archives. And so they go to the archives, and they let me handle A.J. Tomlinson's Bible. And here's a picture of me holding his Bible. And it, when I wanted to open the Bible, they said, no, no, wait. We need to put white gloves on your hands so that you can open. And so I'm starting to think, I have some great heritage here, great family lineage, feeling good about myself. I walk out of the building, and this is what I saw, a life-size statue of this. And the Lord said to me, Steve, 
Great family heritage, wonderful. You still are in the place of needing to be like my son, Jesus, who washes feet. Over and over again, I need to be reminded that it's about Jesus' aspect of serving that I'm to pursue. I'm glad to say I'm not the only one who struggles with humility. A lot of us do. There's an Oxford scholar, many of you have heard of his name, C.S. Lewis. Many of you know he wrote famous books, Mere Christianity. He wrote The Chronicles of Narnia. But a lot of people don't know he also was a poet. And he wrote a poem called As the Ruin Falls. He says these words, all this is flashy rhetoric about loving you. I've never had a selfless thought since I was born. I am mercenary and self-seeking through and through. I want God, you, all friends, merely to serve my turn. Peace, reassurance, pleasures are the goals I seek. I cannot crawl one inch outside my proper skin. I talk of love. A scholar's parrot may talk Greek, but self-imprisoned always end where I begin. Here's C.S. Lewis acknowledging his own struggle with the pursuit of humility. So what is the answer? How do we get there? I believe the Apostle Paul gives us what we need. And it's in the scripture that you received in that card that I'm hoping maybe a few of you, maybe all of you could memorize it. It begins this way. Philippians chapter 2, Paul writing from prison to a Macedonian church in northern Greece, these simple words, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourself. So let's break down those two couplets, shall we? Do nothing out of selfish ambition. The Greek actually conveys of striving for your own sake. But the NIV captures it well when it's a selfish ambition. Ambition, by the way, is not a bad word. Ambition's a good word. Jesus had ambition to save the world. And we're so glad he did. It's the modifier that comes right before that selfish ambition. That's when I want it to be all about me. How do I pull back from that? You know, I love visiting presidential libraries and museums and I've had my share of visiting a number of them. I, I went to, on Long Island, Teddy Roosevelt's Sagamore Hill. That's fun to, to visit and see. I had the opportunity when I was in Grand Rapids to see Gerald Ford's museum. When I was in Texas, I saw both Bush libraries down there. And when I went to California, I went to the Nixon Library and I went to the Ronald Reagan Library. But when I was in the bookstore of the Ronald Reagan Library, I saw something that he kept in his desk that was for sale, and I thought, I want to get one of those. It's a simple plaque, and it was very helpful and remains helpful for me. It looks like this, and this is what it says. There's no limit to what a man can do or where he can go if he doesn't mind who gets the credit. I mean, that's the heart, because so much of what we do is all about me getting credit for something, but seeing that plaque on the desk, and I have to say, staff members told me all the time that they appreciated that plaque because they felt good if they had a chance to preach or if they had a chance to serve, that the pastor isn't always trying to build himself up. Well, the pastor struggles with humility, but things like that plaque 
would remind me of that place. Things like this little statue would remind me of my place. The second thing he says, selfish ambition, or here's the next couplet, vain conceit. Now, you may think to yourself, both of those words are bad in English, being vain and being conceited. But the word that we have in English for conceit actually sits on the Greek word for glory. And what it's saying, glory is a, is a neutral word. Like, for example, what does glory mean? It's the radiance of something. For example, a light bulb, the glory is that it produces light. That's, that's neutral in and of itself. But there is such a thing as vain glory, where I'm wanting to build up myself, and that's where I'm wanting to go. That's where I'm trying to mitigate that. One of the ways that has helped me with this issue is reading a business book by a, a guy named Jim Collins. Jim Collins wrote a phenomenal book. It's really a classic now called Good to Great. Now, in this book, he's trying to determine why is it that some companies only make it to good, but other companies get all the way to great. And what he defines great is excellent Wall Street performance year after year after year. Why is it that some companies achieve this? So we went to research it. And he was thinking it's probably going to be based on procedures or, or policies. But he was surprised to learn it was based on the CEO. He said the companies that are great had this in common. The head of that company was very humble, but they had a passionate will, not for their success, but for the success of the organization. In fact, he noticed that they have a similarity to the quality of Jesus. He actually mentions this, this deep humility and this passionate will. He gives a practical example. He says, here's, a, here's what a, a level five leader looks like. A level five leader, when something goes right, they look out the window and they say, what a great staff we have. And when something goes wrong, they look in the mirror and they say, what could I have done better? That is a quality that I want. But once again, I want to avoid selfish ambition and vain conceit. What's the power? What's the energy? Where's the engine for that to happen? Now, here's where Paul mentions it. He says this, verse 5, in all of your relationships, have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus. So we could say, be like Jesus. And you think, okay, he serves, he washes feet. Those are all good things, good things to own, to keep in your mind. But now he pulls out the big guns. He has what we call this passage, the kenosis passage. Theologians call it that. Because this passage describes when Jesus relinquishes his divine prerogatives, puts them on a shelf, and though he is fully God and fully man, he doesn't use his divine attributes. And here's what the apostle says. Do not, uh, in all your relationships, have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Instead, he made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant, and being found in human likeness, and having the appearance of a man, 
he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So what Paul says, do you want the strength to pursue humility? You need to look at Jesus himself, at what he was willing to do. In fact, C.S. Lewis, when he continues writing the poem, because I didn't give you the whole poem, he finishes it this way. But only that now you have taught me, but how great my lack, I see the chasm. And everything you are is making my heart into a bridge by which I might come back from exile and grow, man. And now the bridge is breaking. And it's at this point in C.S. Lewis' poem, Jesus enters in, and he says this, For this I bless you as the ruin falls. The pains you give me are far precious than all other gains. The example we have is a Savior who lets go of all these things to save you, to save me. There's been a picture I've seen in a number of Facebook feeds, and I am blessed every time I see it. It's of this little tiny newborn lamb lost in the woods. And if you see this little lamb looking fragile and alone, but if you look carefully in the picture behind, you see somebody running. And that is Jesus running to capture that lamb into his arms and have him safe and protected, leaving the 99 and cherishing that one. Uh, Let me ask you a question. Who do you think we are in this picture? We're the little frail lamb desperately in need of somebody who takes that. And the apostle Paul says, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Interesting thing about humility is this is the doorway in becoming a Christian. It's recognizing you can't save yourself. I remember the first time I heard Pastor Tim Keller, who's now with the Lord, but he said, we have this mindset in our culture that we can be self-savers, that we can pick ourselves up and, and we'll be okay, but at the heart of the gospel is that you can't do anything to save yourself. And you have to acknowledge in your humility that your own pathway, your your own personality, your own achievements are bankrupt and that you need something outside of yourself to save you. There's a preacher, his name is Alistair Begg, and I think he captured well the understanding of this humility in the gospel. And Alistair Begg is a Scottish preacher from Cleveland, Ohio, And he he says, do you remember the thief on the cross? So you remember, Jesus was crucified between two thieves, one on his left and one on his right. And while the crucifixion is taking place, both thieves are mocking Jesus. If you're the son of God, come down from that cross. And while you're at it, save us too. But somewhere along, hanging on the cross, one of the thieves has a different perspective. And as he's breathing his last... He says, Jesus, will you remember me when you go into your kingdom? Remember what Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. So here's what Alistair Begg says. Just imagine the thief coming into heaven for the first time. He's walking in and there's an angel at the gate of heaven. And the angel looks up from his notes and there's the thief. 
And the angel goes, "Uh, what are you doing here? Moments ago, you were mocking him. You were insulting the, the savior, the creator of all there is, and you're here? You made it? How did you make it? And he says, I, I have to get my supervisor angel. <laughs> so the supervisor angel comes and goes, ooh, what do we have here? Uh, I think I'm going to have to ask you some diagnostic questions. Where do you stand on the justification by faith alone? And the thief goes, I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, let me get just cut to the chase. Where do you stand on the doctrine of scripture? I don't know what you're talking about. And the angel looks him in the eye and says, by what means are you here? To which the thief said, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's it. That's the gospel. It's not about what you do and what you accomplish. It's about what Jesus accomplished on our behalf. And this is why I think, you know, just like Pastor Brad mentioned that as Paul is talking about giving, he like breaks into praise. I think Paul just can't take it anymore. And he says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we celebrate Jesus because it is in his humility to humble himself and become obedient to death, even death on a cross, that gives us the opportunity to humble ourselves and say, Lord, we just saved me too. I want to end with one more story. And it relates to a, a little prop that I have here. Actually, I would call it a pretty big prop. It is a floor buffer here, carpet buffer. And so, remember I told you the story of preparing for the Billy Graham crusade and and bragging about how many people I had at Easter? Well, a few months later, the crusade preparation is going on, and I am in our Syosset campus and in the foyer buffing carpets. I have this thing. I hate coffee stains on carpets. And it seems like everyone who drinks coffee ends up spilling it on the carpet. And the custodian, you know, he vacuums the carpet, but they're not really paid to, like, scrub the carpet. So I had what I call my Popeye moment. For those of you who remember Popeye the Sailor Man, I had all I could stands and I can't stands no more. And so I'm there just buffing the carpet. And there's this knock. The knock was on the door, and it's all glass windows in that foyer, and I I go and open the door. And they said, hi, we're here to talk to Pastor Steve uh, relating to the Billy Graham crusade. I said, oh, sure, come on in. And I sat them at a table, and then I sat down with them. And they said, oh, no, I'm so sorry. We're not aiming to talk to the custodian. We're aiming to talk to Pastor Steve. And I said, well, I am Pastor Steve. And they said, and you do the floors? Yeah, sometimes. And I conducted the business, and we finished. They walked out, and the Holy Spirit said to me, Steve, a lot more of this, a lot less of you. 
and that's going to be my goal, my lifelong goal. Why is humility so important? Is because it's the doorway in to our relationship with Christ. And the more you and I pursue humility, the more we take on the fragrance of Jesus. And that's who I want to smell like. In a moment, we're going to end our service, and there's going to be a time of prayer before we have our baptisms. And the prayer team is going to be up here. If you have anything you want to enter into with the Lord, we're here to do that. The most important thing might be if this is your day to humbly say, I want to receive him into my life. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for our privilege to be here today. Lord, I want to say thank you in advance for our privilege to watch these candidates for baptism publicly acknowledge that you were their Savior. But Lord, what I'm praying right now is that by your Spirit, we would all look in that metaphorical mirror about all the times it's always been about us. But now, Lord, we, we see it's not to be that way. That the greatest among us needs to be like the youngest. And the one who sits on the table needs to be like the one who serves. And our vision, our goal, is nothing less than the one who relinquished all his divine prerogatives and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And because of his awesome example, we have salvation. We can boldly come into the throne room of God, clean and holy, not because we accomplished anything, but because the man on the middle cross said we could come. And we said, yes, broken people finding a perfect Savior in whose name we pray. Amen.